0: You guys can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be hopping around a little bit this morning, and you can follow along if you'd like, or if you'd like to just stay here. I'll read all the texts for you, but we're going to be taking a break from our series in Romans. God has really been blessing us as we've been working through some pretty deep material in Romans, haven't we? But we're going to take a break just to do a three-week mini-series, and the series is called Anchored in the Word of God. Now, as individuals who make up the church of Redemption Church, one of the things that we need to realize is that one of our greatest needs as a church, one of our greatest needs as Christians is to be anchored in the Word of God. We need not only the regular reminder of what God's Word is and how we are to read it and how it's to be the foundation of our life, but we need to regularly as Christians recommit to the Word of God. It was Jesus who said these words. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so listen, church, we embark on this series anchored in the word of God and realize that our Lord himself said that this is life and death. Jesus reminded us that we live in a world that has a lot of bread. There are a lot of things that we can anchor ourselves in. There are a lot of foundations that we can stand on top of. There are a lot of things that we can seek satisfaction in. There are a lot of different things that we can pursue, but Jesus reminds us that these things are made of bread, but the word of God endures. There is one foundation that is sturdy enough for us to anchor ourselves in, and it is the very word of God. And so church, let me ask you to commit yourself to this series. Don't just let these messages over the next three weeks be reminders for you. Hear the Word of God and recommit to the Word of God, knowing that this is the book that gives life to those who believe it, to those who delight in it, and to those who pursue God from it. Here's the reality. This book that I hope you hold in your hands, whether it's in paper version or the less superior electronic version, this book I'm just kidding. I lost some people for the whole message there. I'm just kidding. It's okay. This book is the living word of God. Our God is a God who loves to speak. From the beginning of creation, God has spoken. And God loves to reveal himself. And so he's given us a book. He's written a book. Recently, I had a conversation with someone and this person was really fascinated with the idea of aliens. They're fascinated that they're by this concept that there might be some knowledge outside of us, outside of Earth, some superior knowledge that might be trying to communicate with us. Aliens that are trying to come to Earth that we could learn from them, and obviously they'd be way smarter than us because they can travel through the galaxy and find our planet. And this person had spent countless hours investigating the possibility of aliens. And I find myself having this conversation more and more. And what I think this reveals about our human nature is that as humans, we desire to hear a higher being speak. Now, the claim that the Bible makes for itself is that in the Bible, we have the very words of God. The creator of this universe, the highest possible being there is as creator, wrote a book, and in it we find everything that's necessary for us to know. And so I told this person, and I want us to praise God because of this truth this morning, that God has spoken, and he's done it through a book, and all that we need to do to hear God's living voice is pick up the book and read it. When we're anchoring ourselves in God's word, we're anchoring ourselves in the living word of the creator. Now, if this is true about God's word, then if, if it really is the book that God wrote, our natural reaction should be to anchor it, ourselves in it. Shouldn't it? Like if the highest being, the creator of the universe, wrote a book, it would make sense that we'd want to read it. But the reality is when we look around our, not only around our world, but even in our church, the reality is, is that at times it's hard to anchor ourselves in God's word, isn't it? We live in a world where many are longing for some sort of word from a higher being and we give them the Bible, but they don't want that. Even in our own Christian lives, we can find it a struggle to wake up each morning and anchor ourselves each day in the living word of God. Not only that, maybe we are reading God's word, but there are times where it's dry. There are times when we're just doing it to check off a box. And so my question then is, what's going to draw us, what power is there that will draw us day after day to read this book and hear God speak from this book? The Bible tells us that there is one thing that will draw us time and time again back to the book that God wrote. The Bible tells us that if we desire to hear God speak through the book he has written, then there is one essential key that will make that possible, and that key is belief. That key is belief. If we want to hear God speak through the word of God, we need to believe in the word of God. Well, if belief is the essential key, if belief is the one power that will draw us to the word of God, then it requires something of us. And the first thing I want you to know this morning that, is that true belief requires that I have true comprehension of the point of God's word. In order to believe in God's Word, I must truly understand what is in God's Word and why it's written. Hearing God's Word, in other words, is possible when we understand exactly what God's Word is and what it is that is inside God's Word. See, before this book will affect your heart, this book has to be in your head. Before you can taste the sweetness of God speaking to you through his Word, you need to comprehend the method by which God speaks. And God has communicated to us through his word. Until, until we believe what we need to believe about God's word, we won't hear him speak. But once a year in my life, I'll log on to a very popular website called Facebook. There are two things that always surprise me when I go on Facebook. One is that people still use it. I'm constantly shocked, because I never go on, that people are still on Facebook. Another thing that surprises me is I look at my messages and I have a number of messages. Not a lot. I'm not that popular. But every time I log on, I'm surprised to realize that someone like 11 months ago has sent me this message on Facebook. And sometimes it's like a message that's really urgent that I need to answer right away. And I always have to respond, I never check this. I had no idea that people still communicate through this. And so I had no idea that you had written this message to me. The same goes for the Word of God. If we don't know what God's word is, if we don't know that God has spoken to us through a book, we'll never have a comprehension of what he said to us. We need to both know that God is speaking through his book, and we need to know what God has written in his book. Now, this is the issue that Jesus would expose to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, verses 3 to 7. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, kind of the stage is set for Jesus' words to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are watching the disciples walk through the grain fields. As they walk through the field, they begin to eat because they're hungry. This is a natural thing that each of us would do, but the Pharisees were shocked by this because the day on which the disciples did this was the Sabbath. Now, the scriptures had commanded God's people to rest on the Sabbath, but the Pharisees had really blown this to another level. They had added all of these man-made rules, these stipulations that you needed to live up to if you were going to take the Sabbath seriously. So after seeing the disciples break their man-made interpretation of the Sabbath, they confronted Jesus and they said to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now look how Jesus responds to them in verses 3 to 5. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? See, twice In these verses, Jesus asked the Pharisees this question, Have you not read? You need to understand that this would be one of the most insulting questions that Jesus could ask the Pharisees. If anyone had read the word of the commandments, if anyone had rigorously studied, memorized, and dedicated themselves to the commandments of God, it was the Pharisees. And so what Jesus is doing to the Pharisees by asking them, have you not read, would be incredibly insulting. I've kind of made a habit of doing what Jesus is doing to the Pharisees here. I love doing this to people. I love finding someone who's like a real fan of some story, whether it's like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. And I love going up to them and asking them if they know about a really simple fact about that story. Try this, okay? Find a Star Wars fan and ask them if they remember that time When Darth Vader said to Luke Skywalker, Luke, I am your father. They'll be shocked. (gasps) How dare you question how much a fan I am. Ask a Harry Potter fan if they've ever heard of Hogwarts. They'll pull a wand out of their back pocket and cast a spell on you right there. How dare you question if I know this thing that I love. Now this is kind of what Jesus is doing to the Pharisees. Have you read? And the answer, the Pharisees would say, is, of course I read. But Jesus is exposing this, that the Pharisees had failed, not because they didn't read the word, but because they didn't comprehend the word of God. This is why in verse 7, Jesus shifts the language. Look what he says in verse 7. Not only that you need to read, but he says, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. See, when in our head we understand the meaning of Scripture, when we comprehend the point of Scripture, in our heart we can hear God's voice through Scripture. See, the issue is that we are prone to misunderstand God's Word. The issue is that just because we have a copy of God's Word doesn't mean that we truly comprehend God's Word. And so it may be possible that you, like the Pharisees, have this understanding of the Word of God that it's like this moralistic rule book. And maybe you don't truly comprehend the point of God's Word because you read God's Word in order to figure out what you need to do. And you regularly read God's Word because you're looking for the next commandment. What do I need to do in order for God to accept me? You rigorously try to keep your life in line with God's word, looking for the next commandment, looking for the next to-do. But your legalism, it doesn't lead you to God. Your legalistic approach to Scripture doesn't reveal the voice of God through Scripture. It only leads you away from God. See, when we chase God through moralistic perfection, we only feel the burden of our own failure. We can't meet God. We can't hear his living voice through legalism. Others might treat this book as though it's some sort of manual for their own personal success. You ever find yourself in a spot where you need God's wisdom, or, or you need a word from God? And so sometimes people will just open up to a random page, praying, God, tell me what you want to tell me. As though this is just some sort of book guideline for success in your life. And so you flip to a page, and unfortunately you find Ezekiel. Rather than finding an inspiring word from God, you find a prophecy of judgment on your nation. See, the point of God's word is not to give you a list of rules. The point of God's word is not to be your handbook for personal success in your life. The point of God's word is to declare the glory of God's redemptive plan for his church. This is why I love the name of our church, Redemption Church, because that's what this is all about. Three chapters in the beginning about how this world was formed, two chapters at the end about how we'll spend eternity, but over a thousand chapters in the middle, all pointing to the Son of God. This is the point of every book, of every chapter, of every verse, of every letter, is to point to Jesus Christ. As the redeemer of God's people. In every section of the Bible, in every verse of the Bible, Christ is either patterned or promised or present. If you don't know the Son of God, if you don't know Jesus Christ, then you can't truly comprehend the point of God's word. But this reveals a problem about why we don't really hear God's voice in God's word. See, the problem is not that God has spoken. God has spoken loud and clear through his scriptures. He is proclaiming, he is screaming about the glory of his son. God has clearly shown us through the scriptures how he will redeem a wayward people. See, the problem is not that God has spoken. The problem is that God has spoken. And in our sinfulness, we don't care what God has to say. We don't want to hear about the son of God. See, God has shone his light, but we loved God darkness. He has declared his word, but in our sinfulness, we have loved silence. This is the hardness of our heart. Instead of loving the word of God, instead of anchoring ourselves deeply in the word of God, we love our sin. And so Jesus says these words in John three nineteen. He says, light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than the light. So understand this, that the first thing you must do to truly comprehend the point of God's Word is you must be awoken to it. Something needs to happen in your life to change your hardness of heart. In your sinful condition, something must happen so that no longer you love the darkness, that now you love the light. This is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He says in verse 4, what Jesus has said about our heart. He said, in their case, speaking about unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Here's the picture. Because in our sinfulness, we are hard of heart, because Satan reigns as the ruler of the prince of po- the power of air, God is shining the light of the glory of his son through his word, Through his creation, and we are blind to it. It doesn't matter how much light you shine for a person who is completely blind, they cannot see. It would be entirely unhelpful if a blind person came in this morning and the usher said, Oh, hold on one minute. Let me just grab my flashlight. I got you. You make your own way. It's just not going to work. Something else needs to happen. This is what Paul talks about in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, this is the work that God needs to do in each of us if we will hear his living word, if we will meet him in scripture, if we will have true communion with him through this book, then we must be awoken to it. The God who said, let light shine in our darkness, must shine in the darkness of our hearts so that we can see what, Paul says, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Once you are awoken, you can truly comprehend the point of scripture. But it cannot stop here. We not only must be awoken to Scripture, we must be convicted about what is in Scripture. Once, the, once God's glory takes a hold of you through the pages of Scripture, then as Christians, we take a hold of God through the pages of Scripture. And so the next thing you need to know about belief is that belief requires I have total conviction in the power of God's Word. Belief requires I have total conviction in the power of God's Word. Now you can turn to 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 16 with me, if you'd like. The next reality that we learn about God's Word is that I'll only anchor myself in God's Word when I'm truly convinced that God's Word is powerful. When the power of this book to accomplish God's work in your life is a conviction that you have embraced, you will be drawn to it. But if you don't believe that God's word is powerful, there's no way that you're ever regularly going to anchor yourself in it. This is why when Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, in chapter 4, verse 2, he says this to Timothy. He says, here's what you need to do in ministry. You want one thing to do? This is what you do. Preach the word. Preach the word. What a long list of things that Paul could have given to Timothy that would have been profitable for him to do in ministry. But this is what Paul says. Preach the word. You want to see something accomplished in your ministry? Timothy, preach the word. But this application to preach the word comes from this conviction that Paul has that he lays out in 2 Timothy 3.16. Look what he says there. He says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for, recre- for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul's desire to use Scripture and our desire to hear Scripture comes from this life-consuming conviction about what Scripture is. Because he has this total conviction that Scripture is powerful— that it's effective, that it's profitable, he sees his need to use it. He sees no other way. Paul says to Timothy, if we're going to do what God has called us to do in this church, we need to be anchored in the word. We must preach the word because of what the word of God is. It is powerful to accomplish what God wants to accomplish in his people. Now, this is the reality. When we see the profit of something, When we see the effectiveness of something, when we see the power of something, we are all the more excited to use it, aren't we? There's a time that I love in my my life when it comes to house maintenance. I love when I'm using the kitchen sink, and I go to drain it, and it starts draining slowly. Because at that point, I get to use my favorite magical product there is in the world, Drano. I don't know how this stuff works. I know that when I put it in the drain, it burns my nostrils, so it must not be something that's very good. But when you use drain for me, there's kind of this excitement. Like, the, the drain's clogged now, but you wait in a few seconds. This is going to be the clearest drain you ever have. And you pour the draino in, and you see it start bubbling up, and it's sizzling, and there's some sort of, like, deathly chemical reaction there. I'm telling the kids to put their masks on. You pour some water down. You wait 15 minutes, and you come back. And what do you do when you pour water down? It drains down. It goes down the drain. It's magic. It's powerful. And I love when this time comes in our house that I get to use Drano. Now, that's a silly illustration to illustrate what's going to happen in your life when you're convinced that the Word of God is powerful to accomplish the work of God in your life. See, the times that we're sluggish to get to God's Word, the time that we're slow to anchor ourselves in God's Word, are the time that we're not convinced of the power of God's Word. But when I have this total life-consuming conviction that God's Word is powerful, it becomes the book that I turn to most. The opposite of that is true as well, isn't it? That if we don't find ourselves regularly turning to the Word of God, what does that say about our belief in the Word of God? That we, we just don't believe that we really need God's Word to succeed in life. If in our parenting we don't turn to the Word of God for help. If we don't anchor everything we do as parents for the good of our children in the the Word of God, what does that say about our belief in the power of God's Word? If in our marriage we don't regularly open up the Word of God, what does that say about our belief about what the Word of God might accomplish in and through our marriage? When we don't anchor ourselves in God's Word, it proves that we lack a conviction of its Power. And so my question this morning then is what makes God's word so powerful that it deserves our total conviction? The first thing I want you to see is that God's word is powerful because it's inspired. God's word is powerful because it's inspired. So Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3:16. He says, All scripture is breathed out by God. Paul's saying that all the scriptures, from Old Testament to New Testament, are the very words of God given to us by the breath of God. So that to read Scripture is to read God's very word. It's to say that the author of this book is God himself. God wrote a book for us, and that book is the Bible. Now, inspiration is the process that God, which God used, where he took 40 different biblical authors... sorry, over 40 different biblical authors, to reveal himself to us. And the Bible talks about this process in 2 Peter 1, verses 20-21. to It explains the way that this worked. It says this, Knowing this, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, what Peter is saying is that Scripture is not just like the divinely approved book that God gives us. It's not like the Bible is a book written by men but endorsed by God on the back. What Peter is saying is that this is the Word of God. That God inspired the authors of Scripture to write in such a way that what they were writing was God's own Word. This is why he says they wrote Scripture carried along by the Holy Spirit. This means when we pick up the word of God, we have confidence that it's just that. The words that God has given us. In this very book, we hear God's voice. This is why all throughout time, the people of God had, re- has, had referred to this as the book of God. So that D- David in Psalm 19 time and time again refers to these scriptures, calling them the law of the Lord the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord. Over a thousand times, even in just the Old Testament alone, we either read the words, thus says the Lord, or we know that someone's speaking on behalf of God. When we read this book, we can be sure that we are reading the words of God himself. See, this book has power in your life because this is the book that God wrote. I don't know about you, but I love books. I love the way that books have changed me. I love the amount of information that you can get from books. Sometimes I'll sit in a library and I just, I look at all the rows of books and I'm amazed at how much information you can find about anything. You can find information about anything these days, can't you? Sometimes I try to like test out Google. You ever do this? I'm like, there's gotta be, there's nobody who's an expert on this thing that I'm about to Google. And so I Google it, and sure enough, it's very rare that I can find something to Google that you can't find an expert on. There's experts in everything. There are books that you can read that someone who's credentialed can teach you about investing. There are books you can read that someone who has accomplished a lot can teach you about productivity. There are a lot of amazing books you can read by authors who have accomplished so much and who are credentialed in so many ways. But there is no book like the Bible There is no author who is more credentialed to help you in life than the author God Himself. If we look to credentialed people to write books to help us, how much more should we anchor ourselves in this word that is powerful because God inspired it? Now, not only is the word of God powerful because it's inspired by God, but I want you to see that God's word is powerful because it's inerrant. God's word is inerrant. Now, this flows from the truth that God's Word is inspired. Because it's inspired by God, the Word of God is also without error. See, God wrote a book, and the author of the Bible as God is a God of truth. Inerrancy, it speaks to the truthfulness of Scripture. Scripture is powerful because Scripture is truth. In these words, we find the words of truth. Now we can affirm the truthfulness of this book because we can affirm the truthfulness of its author. All throughout Scripture, God calls himself the God of truth. God reminds us that he as God cannot lie. The writer of Proverbs affirms God's truthfulness in the Scripture saying, every word of God proves true. Because God is a God of truth, the book that he wrote is truth. And so I love the way that Wayne Grudem defines inerrancy. He says this, the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Now, perhaps more than any other doctrine of our day, the doctrine of inerrancy is under attack in the church. There are many critics who deny the truthfulness of Scripture, who deny the inerrancy of Scripture by pointing out that the Bible contains terms that perhaps aren't scientifically or grammatically correct. And that there are passages in Scripture that seemingly contradict each other. And that if these things are true about Scripture, then there's no way that this Word can be without error. They point to these things as errors in God's Word. Now, to really quickly respond to that, because really the best way to deal with those things is to take them one at a time, but as quickly as we can in this context... One thing we need to understand about Scripture is that in its inspiration, God used human authors who wrote in their culture with their conventions. This is why when you open up the Word of God, you can't find anything about Instagram. Because Paul was writing in his day. Paul was writing in his culture. And Paul was using the literary styles that were available to him in that day. This is something that we do as readers of literature and maybe even watchers of movies. We read history as history. We read poetry as poetry. We watch Spider-Man and we're not concerned, concerned with how scientifically incredible it is that a spider can bite a person and they become a superhero. The only thing we get when we are bitten by a spider is weird bumps that we're confused about. But we're not worried about that. This is a superhero movie. I'm not going to treat it as history. Now, this is something that we need to bring to the Bible. When we look at the history of the Bible, we need to understand how history is written in that day. When we look at poetry in the Bible, we're not looking at it for scientific precision of our day. We're looking at it as poetry. Many of the criticisms that are aimed at inerrancy, many of the ways that people try to take the feet out un- from under the Bible, could be dealt with if we approach Scripture as Scripture. So let me give you an example, because there are a lot of places we could go here, but some have discredited Scripture because the Gospels, for instance, are told in a non-chronological order. If you read uh, the four Gospels, if you were to try to make a timeline of Jesus' life and ministry, you would find that each Gospel tells the story a little bit differently. You'd also find that some of the things that Jesus says are a little bit different whether it's shorter or longer in one gospel from the other or maybe it's just a bit different. The gospels aren't told in chronological order. The characters in the gospel aren't quoted with, in, with precise citation. But what we need to understand is that this is the way that history was told in that day. It's unhelpful for, for us because in our day it's the exact opposite. If I were to tell you a story about my 16th birthday and I said, oh, well, it all started on my 16th birthday and then I was born, you'd say, wait, back it up. Something's wrong with that story. We want stories in chronological order. We feel portrayed by directors who write a movie and show you the last scene first. Well, it wasn't so with the writers of gospel history. They were fine with non-chronological narration Citation was fine if it wasn't precisely what the person said, but conveyed the exact message the person said. This was okay for that day, and it's not okay for us to take our literary requirements and impose them on Scripture. See, the Word of God is inerrant. The Word of God is without error. In every verse, the Word of God proves true. And church, we need to find comfort in this truth. Don't we live in a day and age where you just can't be sure of anything, can you? Where there's so much division in the church. It's hard to know what to believe about really anything. You can go on Google, and if you Google 10 reasons why coffee is bad for you, you're going to be convinced you're going to die because of the cup of coffee you drank this morning. If you Google 10 reasons why coffee is good for you, you're going to find the truth. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) But you will find articles that tell you the exact opposite. We live in a day and age where really there's nothing that can be certifiably true. There's science on both positions. But there's one thing that is certain. The Word of God is certain. The Word of God is true. The Word of God is inerrant. When you read this book and you properly interpret its meaning, you can be sure that you are reading truth. Without a doubt, everything in God's Word is true. And so it's powerful. Next, the Word of God is powerful because it's effective. And so Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3 to say that the Word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So Paul's telling us about the Word of God is that it gets results. When you believe this book, when you anchor your life in this book, it's to your prophet, Paul says. And so all who have taken this book up in true belief, all who have heard the voice of the living God speak to them through the word of God, have been changed. Its power is in its effectiveness To teach us about God, Paul says, to reveal to us our error, to reprove us, to correct our waywardness, and to train us in righteousness. The word of God is effective. Now Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, tells us about the effectiveness of God's word in Isaiah 55. He says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is what God's word promises. Every time the word of God is heard, every time the word of God is read, every time the sword of the Spirit is wielded, it is effective in the lives of those who hear it. When the preacher proclaims God's word, that word will not return void. It will accomplish what God purposes for it. When the parent disciplines and reproves their child with the word of God, that will not return void. When the disciple maker gathers a group of disciples around them and they open up the word and they dig into the treasure of the word, that time will not be wasted because God has promised his church that his word is always effective. It's always accomplishing, whether it's hardening hearts or softening hearts, the word of God is always accomplishing the work of God. This is the power of God's word that needs to be in our mind whenever we take it up. Every time that you wake up, you get out of your warm bed into the cold air, you get down to the the word of God, it will be effective in your life. Even when you don't feel like it, God is using his word to transform you, to teach you, to reprove you, to correct your ways. This is the thing that will drive us to the Word of God, and we are convinced that it is effective in our life, That's effective for our transformation. And so morning by morning, we run to the Word of God with this overwhelming belief that this time is going to be effective. It's much like a person who decides to, maybe they're going to start a diet and start going to the gym, they're going to lose some weight or gain some muscle. One of the most motivating things in those times is when you actually start seeing it work. You know, you're eating well, and you're feeling a lot better, you're going to the gym, and people are noticing, and you feel great, you're seeing the results of it, you're seeing that this is really effective. But it gets hard when those results stop coming. We start wondering if this is really working, if it's really worth eating all this cabbage soup, if it's really worth waking up and going to this gym every morning. When we don't see the effectiveness of what we're doing, it's really hard to do it. And so it is with the Word of God. When you're convinced of its effectiveness, when you have this assurance that the minutes you spend in the Word of God will be used by God, you will be driven to it. You will be anchored in it. Lastly, I want you to see that God's Word has power because it's necessary. God's Word is necessary. So Paul says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work the work that the word of god does in our life paul says is a work that completes us without the word of god we are completely unable to do all that god calls us to this is true for our salvation this is what we heard in romans just last week that if the gospel is not proclaimed then we cannot believe it all starts with an understanding of what god has revealed to us about his son in his word See, in creation, we can know that God exists. God's created works proclaim his existence. They proclaim his glory. But through creation, we cannot know the saving work of God through Jesus Christ. Only the scriptures reveal that to us. This is why we need the book, because this book saves. This book's necessary for our salvation. This book is necessary for our growth. This is why Paul calls the word of God. In Ephesians, he calls it the sword of the spirit. This is what God This is what the Holy Spirit uses in your life to effect change in you. This is why, as a church, in every way, we want to be anchored in the Word of God. This is why, when we sing songs, we sing songs that declare God's truth. This is why, when we pray, we pray God's Word. This is why when we preach, we preach expositionally because we don't want to say anything that's not from the word of God. We don't believe that our opinions, that our words have power to change. We believe that the spirit uses the sword of the spirit to affect change in our hearts, to mature disciples in our church. This is why in our small groups, we constantly open up the word of God, looking to uh, scripture to inform our life. This is why we in our personal lives need to be anchored in the word of God because this is what God uses to effect change in our lives. This is the spirit's sword. This is the total conviction that must take root in our life, a conviction that God's word is powerful to accomplish much in our life. Only then will we run to the word of God. Lastly, I want you to see that belief requires I have transforming communion with the person of God. Transforming communion with the person of God. You can... Just flip a few pages over to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And what I want you to see here is what is really happening whenever we open up the Word of God. What's going on when we pick up the sword of the Spirit. Look what the author of Hebrews tells us. He says, For the Word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the last thing that we must believe about God's word. The last way that will be driven to read God's word is when we understand that when we pick up this book, we are entering into communion with the living God because this is his living and active word. Do you see that in the text? It says in verse 12, for the word of God is living. This is the claim that God makes about this book, that this book is living. It's not like any other book. Every other book that we've ever interacted with is a dead book. Every other book is just words, just information on a page. But that's not so for the Word of God. The Word of God says that it's living inactive. Well, what does it mean for the Word of God to be living? It means that not only do you read this book, what's happening in verse 12 and 13 is that when you pick up this book, when you read this book, this book reads you. When you read this book, you are entering into communion with the living God who is interacting with you through this book. It's the sword that pierces to your heart to produce change. So that to read this book is to sit in front of the living God and enter into communion with him. Be exposed before him that you might be changed. I love what Martin Luther says about the living word of God. Martin Luther says this, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Because the Bible is alive, it is speaking to your very problems today. How many have written off the word of God as old and antiquated? The Bible's not old. The words of this page, the application of this book is fresher than tomorrow's newspaper. As soon as ink is spilt on any page, that is dead writing. That's a dead book, but it's not so with the Word of God because the Spirit is constantly using this book to apply fresh application to your life. Find the oldest saint who has read this book so many times through and they will find that every interaction with it can be a life-changing interaction with the living triune God. Read one of the chapters in this book, day after day, time after time. Come back to it for the rest of your life and you will come back to something that is fresh because God is continually speaking to his church through his book. Listen, this is so important for us to hear. Because the word is living, we will constantly find all that we need in it. How often has God been so faithful in your life to use a sermon to speak to you where you needed to be spoken to? How often does it feel like someone's opening up the word of God and applying it directly to your situation? Because this is a living book. And the Holy Spirit's applying this to your life. How often have we opened this book in our own personal reading and and God has provided for us exactly what we needed for that day. Time and time again, we find what we need for today in the Word of God because it is living. To read this book is to commune with the person of God. Every time we anchor ourselves in this book, we are meeting with God and things are happening in our life. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And so, church, my question this morning is this. Do you believe the Word of God? Is that a belief that is proven in your life by the fact that you continually run to the Word of God and anchor yourself in the Word of God in every situation? Do you continually seek to comprehend the Word of God in deeper ways? you find in your life this growing conviction about the power of God's work to accomplish God's work in your life? Do you regularly seek and delight in the communion you experience with God through these pages. On his deathbed, a British novelist and poet named Sir Walter Scott would call to his secretary, and he'd say these words, Bring me the book. The secretary would reply, probably the way most of us would reply, Dr. Scott, which book? To which he replied, The book. The Bible. The only book for dying man. We would add to this that this is the only book for living man as well. But the question for us is this. Is this the book for you? Is this the book all above all others? The living word of God. Let us be gripped each day by the same reality that there is a book that God has given to us, that he has spoken to us through. Let's pray.